If you got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter number four. Matthew chapter number four. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Matthew chapter number four. Yeah, we've been on chapter three for a little while now. There's there's lots to get out of that. I could spend another month in there, really, you know. But I'm not going to. But anyway, Matthew 4. And some weeks ago, we began a series in the Gospels, and we're hoping to bring our focus onto Jesus and onto his teachings, onto his examples. And so far, what we've looked at was the ministry of John the Baptist as he was preparing the way for Jesus. Uh, he was the one that uh, came and was to make the path for him. He was to proclaim his coming. Uh, he proclaimed to the people, uh, repent you for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was making way for Jesus. And so we saw in our study so far in our series, if you will, that uh, John the Baptist was a man who was separate, distinct, uh, distinct excuse me, separate, distinct, submitted, imperfect, but effective. God's still looking for men like John that will go and cry out his message and tell the world to prepare the way for the Lord, that the Lord is coming again. So we saw the man, and then we looked at the message that Jesus is coming, that the world needs to get ready. Saved needs to be living like they're the child of God, and the lost need to get right with God. Then we saw the multitude. There was a, a difference of reactions and responses amongst the multitude. There were some that believed. There were some that pretended, and there were some that outright rejected. And so we uh, challenged each of us to think on our own selves, uh, how do we respond whenever we hear the word of God? How do we respond whenever the message of God goes out? Do we believe it? Do we pretend that we believe it? Do we outright reject it? What is our response? And then last week, we looked at the Messiah. Uh, we saw his identity. We saw his activities in the past, the present, and in the future. He came, bled, and died to make salvation available. He is now saving whosoever will and working in our lives to transform us into the image of Christ. And he is one day coming again to receive us unto himself that where he is, there we may be also. And that is our blessed hope. We are going to uh, be in a place where he is, where sin is not, where uh, corruption and wickedness is gone. And we will ever be with him. And so we're thankful for that. And so there's nothing that nothing greater that we can do with our lives than, the, than to live them for Jesus and to be a witness for him uh, in this world because he died for us. He's working through us and in us and for us. And as I said, he's coming again to take us to where he is at, a place that he's prepared. And so in the passage that we looked at last week, it was the account of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus came out of the wilderness to John as he was baptizing, and he was baptized of John. And it says that the heavens were open, and God said from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit uh, descended in the likeness of a dove and lighted up on Jesus and remained on him. And we could, uh, we could consider this being the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. No doubt he had already... Uh, already had an impact on the people who knew him and things. Uh, this wasn't uh, the occasion of the first miracle. That'll come later on. But this is where God put his stamp of approval on him. The Holy Spirit identified with him, that Jesus identified with us and with sinners uh, in his baptism. 
And so this was just kind of the starting point, if you will. It's where he crossed the starting line into his ministry as he was headed toward his great victory on the cross. We don't usually think of the cross being a victory, do we? Think of the cross as being a punishment, as being a negative thing. But the cross is the victory. It is that uh, he gave his life so that we can have life. It was the purpose. It was the reason that he came. And so uh, whenever we see here that Jesus is starting his earthly ministry, what do you think would be the next step? What's the next logical step in our minds after God proclaiming him from heaven, after the Holy Spirit descending upon him? We would think that he would gather crowds of people and begin teaching or that he'd march into Jerusalem and take the temple or take the palace or that he would do any number of things that we would perceive as advancing his cause, right? But is that what he did? No. Instead, what we want to find in our passage today is that almost immediately he withdrew himself to the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days, and he was tempted of the devil. That's not what we would think would follow such a great high point in his ministry, right? This beginning place, this place where God's voice boomed from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. And then he goes and faces Satan. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4. We'll read through verse number 11. It says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on the pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands uh, they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high, high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you again today just, just asking, Lord, for your blessing upon the reading of your word. We just ask you, Lord, for your blessings on this service, that you would guide and direct me, Lord, as I bring forth the thoughts that you've laid on my heart. Lord, I just pray that you would minister to your people, Lord, encourage them, strengthen them. I pray, Lord, that you'd help them through this, Lord, and I just pray, ask you that you would uh, just help me to preach your word. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the needs and hearts and lives today. Lord, just do as you see fit and help us as a church to live for you. Help us to be a light and a witness in this community. And Lord, I just pray that you would work in us and through us. We thank you so much for all that you do. And all this is I pray in Jesus' name. And amen. So as we look at this passage, this probably isn't the next logical step in our mind. We don't imagine Jesus going from uh, being proclaimed the Messiah, being proclaimed the Son of God, to going out into the wilderness withdrawn away from the crowds, away from all the people, and having a showdown, if you will, a face-off with Satan himself. 
we could wonder why Jesus would even uh, subject himself to such a thing. Why would he go out? Well, the Bible does tell us that the Spirit led him there, right? And we would wonder, would it be God's will? Why would the Spirit lead him there? As we look at uh, Jesus' model prayer, he says, lead us not into temptation, right? But here the Holy Spirit has led him to this time of tempting. And the Bible doesn't uh, leave us to question why. It gives us several reasons why this had to happen. And it actually makes Jesus that much more wonderful whenever we realize what Jesus did and why he was doing it. Uh, for one reason, he did this to pass the test that Adam had failed. Right? You remember whenever Adam was placed on the earth, he was given charge over all things, that he was given dominion over all of the world, and there was one thing that was restrained from him, that he was not to eat of the fruit. And Adam then faced Satan in the garden instead of in the wilderness, right? He faced him at a time whenever he fellowshiped with God, where he should have been strong, and whenever he faced Satan, Satan used some of the same tactics on Adam as he did on Christ, and Adam crumbled, right? And Eve. They crumbled. But Jesus came to pass the test that Adam had failed. He proved that the thing that God had given Adam to do was doable. And so he, he passed the test that Adam had failed. The second thing that I, I've written down here is that he did this to experience what we experience. The Bible tells us that we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin. He didn't come down here and take the easy road. He didn't come down here and uh, escape all of the things that we go through. Instead, he came down and he experienced all the things that we go through so that he can be our high priest, so that he can relate to us, so that he can be that intercessor that we need. And so he's doing this to relate to us. And then the third thing here is what we're going to be looking at today is that he did it to show us how to triumph over temptation. Adam showed us how to fail. And Jesus showed us how to triumph. And so that's what I'm wanting to look at today is how to triumph over temptation. Because from the fall of Adam to the struggles that you and I face every day, uh, all of mankind constantly faces temptations. We constantly face temptations. It's partly due to the sinful flesh which we inhabit. Whenever you got saved, your flesh didn't get saved. I hope that's not a secret to you all. The flesh didn't get saved. It still has the same appetites it's always had. It's still just as sinful as it always was. And whenever you die, uh, this flesh isn't going to go with you. The Bible says that we're going to have a new body. And praise the Lord for that. We will be outstripped of the sinful flesh. But another reason is that we have an enemy that hates us and hates God and wants to see us fail, wants to see us fall into these problems. And so uh, if he can get us to sin, if he can get us to turn away from God and uh, hinder our relationship with God, that he considers that a victory, right? And so if we're going to live for God, we need to know how to triumph over temptation. And so that's what I want to do. I want to dig in just a little bit to this battle and see how we win it. So the first thing I want us to think about is temptation defined. What is temptation? I'll put it very simple. Okay, I won't waste much time on this. Temptation is the subtle draw of the world, the flesh, and the devil to cause us to sin. There are plenty of things in this world that allure us, plenty of things that attempt or that tempt us. Satan himself will come in uh, with different things to draw our mind and our attention to things that we ought not to do and the things that we ought not to have. 
And then our flesh is always craving it as well. We can look at Adam and Eve in the garden. Whenever Satan came to Eve to tempt her, she was already looking at the fruit. And Satan said, okay, she wants it. And so I'm just going to give her that little nudge to go ahead and go for what she's seeking after. So do you ever feel that nudge? Do you ever feel that temptation to do things that God has said is off limits? To do things that you know is harmful, things that shouldn't be done? That's temptation. That little nudge. And it's often a subtle attempt. Because if you notice in all three of these things that Satan does, well, two out of three, I'll say, they are subtle. Whenever he comes to Jesus and he says, have these stones be made bread. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, right? He is hungry. He is the son of God. He is able to turn stones into bread. So what's wrong with him turning stones into bread? It's subtle, isn't it? It's things that we can rationalize, that we can make it seem like they're okay. Things that if we will entertain it for just a little while, it will overtake us. And so temptation is a subtle draw of the world, the flesh, and the devil to cause us to sin. And so next thing that I want to look at, we'll go quickly through these, I believe, is temptation's desire. What is temptation trying to accomplish? What is it wanting to do to us? Why is it so prevalent? Uh, as we are facing these temptations, not only the temptations, but the tempter himself. De the devil is referred to as the tempter, isn't he? What is his desire? What's he wanting to do? Uh, his desire with Jesus is the same as his desire with us. And he wants, uh, for one thing, he wants to turn our focus to ourselves. Turn our focus to ourselves. Because if he can get our eyes off of God and onto ourselves, then it opens up the door to so many other things, doesn't it? Think about Jesus there in the wilderness as he was being tempted of the devil. The subtleness behind that temptation, as Satan said, turn this stone, turn it into bread. He is getting Jesus to think, I need to let my flesh to be in control. I need to let my appetites determine what I'm going to do and the direction I'm going to go in. Uh, what happens to us whenever our appetites, our flesh, is the one in the driver's seat? What happens whenever these natural desires are the ones that take over? See, Satan was telling Jesus, your father claims to love you. Your father claims to have sent you here, but yet he has allowed you to come into the circumstance and allowed you to suffer these, this hunger and these issues and things. Why don't you just go ahead and satisfy this longing, this hunger that you have. After all, didn't that come from God? Didn't God give you the hunger? Didn't he give you the craving? Didn't he give you that desire? So why not just go ahead and fulfill that desire? So as temptations come, they want us to focus on ourselves. They want us to seek after fulfilling the lust of our flesh, which we'll see here in a little while. And so... Satan's original sin was pride, wasn't it? I will be like the Most High. I will exalt my throne. I will be above him. And so whenever he tempted Eve in the garden, he made her think that he was, that God was keeping something good from her. Y'all remember that? You shall not surely die, but God knows that in the day you eat thereof, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so her focus was off of God and onto herself. It was painting God in a negative light, saying God is keeping 
something from you that's good and you need to get it for yourself. And so God was keeping her from something that she needed. Uh, all three of Jesus' temptations here was attempts to make Jesus focus on getting something for himself. It seems harmless to make bread whenever he was hungry, but if he was letting his flesh dictate the path, and he wasn't facing this life as a man, but as God, because do you have the ability to make stones bread? If Jesus would take the easy way out and would take the God way out of every temptation, every trial that he faced, would he be able to be our savior? Would he be able to be our intercessor? Would he be able to mediate for us? No, he wouldn't. And so Satan is trying to get him focused on self rather than on God, rather than on God's will and God's plan. So the next thing that he wanted him to do is not just to focus him on self, but he wanted to separate him from God. He wanted him acting uh, independently from God doing what he wanted to do. The flesh is in charge. The flesh is in the driver's seat. So now the flesh is going to be determining his direction and his path. And he's pushing God out of the way. He's pushing God to the side. And so sin comes between us and God. And whenever Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. That was that separation. They said, we don't need God. We're not going to do what God would have us to do. We're going to be as gods. We can make the decisions ourselves. We can be the ones in that position. And so the tempter's desire is to get us separated from God, acting independently from him, just like the wolf wants the sheep away from the shepherd. God is our strength. He is our protection. And without him, we can do nothing. And so if the tempter and the temptations can pull us away from God and get us focused on ourselves then we are an easy target, aren't we? Then it's able to overcome us as a flood. The third thing here, whenever we think about temptation's desire, it wants us to focus on self, it wants us to be separated from God, and it wants to get us out of God's will. Jesus said he did always that which pleases the Father. There were time and again that he said, my hour is not yet come. And so he says, I'm on a schedule, I'm on a plan, I'm doing things as God has laid out, as God has dictated. I'm going to do it according to God's will. And if Satan was able to get God to deviate from that, if temptation was able to draw him aside from that, then he wouldn't experience the things that God had set for him. And so Jesus said, I'm not going to fall for Satan's shortcuts. I'm not going to make these stones bread. I'm not going to bow down to Satan. I'm not going to jump from the pinnacle and draw all the attention and the focus to myself to draw crowds and multitudes and to demonstrate who I am. Instead, I'm going to wait and I'm going to do things in line with God's plan. See, temptation and Satan would have us to think that God's way is too slow, that it's too difficult, that there is a different way that we are able to make it happen, that we're able to act outside of God, and that we are able to make our own path, and we're able to make things happen better than God can, and it gets us in a mess. So ultimately, what is temptation's desire? His desire is destruction for us. 
It wants to destroy us. It wants to pull us away from God, away from God's will, get us so wrapped up in ourselves to where we are not going to experience God's blessings and his benefits and the way that he has for us. So we've seen temptation's definition. We've seen uh, temptation's desire. And so where we're going to spend just a little bit of time here, I want to look at temptation's design. I want to take temptation apart just a little bit and see how does it work in our lives? How does it act in our lives? Because if it is so destructive and so determined to turn us away from God, against God, and cause us to miss the blessings and benefits of being with God, we need to know how it works so we're prepared to handle it, right? It's not that hard to figure out. The enemy that we face seems like he just has one program, one way of doing things. And so as he set on our destruction, we can study its design. We can find out how temptation and how the tempter works, and we can be prepared for it. First of all, it works through a personal appeal. If you look at First uh, John chapter number 2, Everybody still awake, still with me? First John chapter number two. Verse number 16. Well, let's go ahead and read verse number 15. It says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And so whenever we look at the personal appeal of temptation, it appeals to the lust of the flesh. We see with Jesus' temptation, that would be the bread, right? He had hunger. He had fleshly temptations. He had fleshly lusts, fleshly desires to fulfill. That was the appeal that it had. And so as we face different temptations, they are going to come to us in one of these three places that we looked at in 1 John chapter number 2, either the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. This is the, the areas that it's going to come to us, one or all of those. And so as we look on it with our eyes, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be desire, desirable. As we imagine the things that it's going to bring into our lives the feelings and the sensations that it will bring in. That's the appeal to the flesh and the pride of life, how it's going to advance us, how it's going to cause us to look before others and all these things. That's the pride of life. And so as we consider over here with the lust of the flesh, the bread was going to satisfy a perceived need there, but it was going to do it the wrong way. We can think of uh, the lust of the flesh and lust of eyes often go together. King David, in the day whenever the kings went forth to battle, he stayed home, and what did he see? He saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof, right? The lust of the eyes. He desired to lay with her the lust of the flesh. And being the king, he thought that he deserved her the pride of life. And all of these things worked together, and he went, sent for her, lay with her, and he thought he got by with it, right? Look at all the the uh, fallout that occurred because of the sins that he committed. You look at Lot, whenever he opened his eyes and looked toward the well-watered plains of Jordan over next to Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, I, I like what I see. 
I'm going to be able to prosper down there. I will make a name for myself. I will become a great man down there in that city. Lust of the flesh and the pride of life. This is the appeal that flesh or that, that temptation makes. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Going back to Jesus' example here, as Satan brought him up to a high point, showed him all the worlds in a moment of time, that would be the lust of the eyes, wouldn't it? Whenever he took him and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, cast yourself down, prove that you have faith, prove that God's going to save you, show yourself to everyone. Because could you imagine if Jesus went from the highest point of the temple, which uh, scholars tell us was some 150 meters high, pretty high isn't it jumped off of it and a crowd of angels came and rescued him and set him safely down on the temple courts what effect would that have on his ministry here jesus here's you a shortcut you don't have to wait for bread make bread here jesus you don't have to wait for god to bring your followers and for his plan you can have instant fame instant success jesus you don't have to go to the cross to get the world just bow down to me I'll give it all to you. All these shortcuts of the devil, but it's a personal appeal. Second thing we see about the design is that it comes with persistent attacks. There is no exemption from temptation. There is no one who can say that they don't face temptation. Because if Satan will tempt Jesus, that's, that's pretty arrogant, isn't it? If he will tempt Jesus, he'll tempt anyone, won't he? There's no such thing as sinless perfection. There's no such thing as someone being beyond being able to be tempted. It doesn't matter if you've been saved for four minutes or 40 years. There's still going to be temptation that comes your way because no one is exempt and there is no end to it. That's encouraging, isn't it? The fact that you're going to face temptation as long as you're on this earth means that you need to have your guard up. The Bible tells us to walk circumspectly. I bring that verse up regularly. We need to be paying attention because the devil doesn't sleep. He doesn't quit. The flesh is never satisfied, and this world is always going to be pressuring. So the world, the flesh, the devil, they, they're not going to give up. And so there's no exemption. There is no end. The tempter doesn't give up. So there's persistent attacks. The third thing about temptation's design is that even though there's no end to the attacks, the attacks are predictable. They're predictable because they happen the same way over and over again. We talked about their appeal. They come in the same packaging. They come in the same wrapping. Satan doesn't come out like... Uh, like a devil with pitchforks and horns and the red outfit that you see people dress up for for Halloween. He doesn't appear appear in that way. Instead, he comes subtly. He comes trying to horn his way in, if you will. But he comes in these same things, appealing to our flesh, our eyes, to our pride. But he comes in predictable times. The times that we need to be most careful for temptation is in the time after victory, for one. Jesus has just saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him. He heard the voice of God from heaven proclaiming him to be his beloved son. He was coming off of a mountaintop experience, right? 
So what happens whenever you have a time of victory? What happens whenever you're on the mountaintop? You let your guard down. You can be lifted up with pride. You can think that you are walking in victory and defeat and things are going great for you. And then the devil will slide in there and try to destroy you, try to distract you, try to defeat you in the time whenever you are most susceptible. The classic example of this would be Elijah in the Old Testament. Remember whenever he went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he took on the, the challenge to the prophets of Baal? He called fire down from heaven and consumed the altar. And the king said, and all the people said, the Lord, he is God. They slew the prophets of Baal. There was a great victory, right? Elijah should have been riding on the mountaintop. And where do you find him in the next chapter? He's in a cave hiding. He's running from Jezebel and he says, she's going to kill me. And he is wishing for death. And so all of these temptations for him to run, for him to hide, for him to uh, doubt God, for him to just quit, for him to seek after death comes right after a mountaintop experience. Beware when things are going well because Satan will try to sneak in while you're doing your victory lap and knock you off course. He also comes in times of weakness. Satan has... Uh, no respectability, no honor whatsoever. He doesn't care if you're weak. He doesn't care if you're down. He will take advantage of whatever he can. He will cheat. He will lie. He will steal. That's Satan. Would you expect anything different? And so Jesus was out in the wilderness. He was uh, fasting for 40 days. And I don't think I need to say this, but after not eating for 40 days, he was weak. Right? I guarantee none of us have fasted for 40 days. And so at that point in time, Jesus was weak. They say that whenever you fast for a long period of time like that, after the third or fourth day, the hunger pains subside. You're no longer suffering and, and dealing with those different things that's going on, telling you that you're hungry, that you're starving, until about 40 days when starvation starts in. And then all those hunger pains come back with a vengeance. And this is when Satan came, is whenever Jesus was dealing with all of these things once again, and he was extremely hungry. And Satan says, hey, make bread. He comes in our times of weakness. Temptation is strong after victory. It's strong in times of weakness. And then the third thing we find is that uh, it's predictable in that it's strong before service. Anytime that God is getting ready to use someone, Satan tries to knock them off course before they get started. We find that Jesus was just getting ready to launch out into his earthly ministry, that he was just getting ready to perform miracles and go to Cana of Galilee and, and do all these different things. He was just getting started, and Satan tried to knock him off course. And we wonder oftentimes, why do these things come up? Why are these trials and these temptations coming our way? Why is it that it seems like just when things are going good, these things strike? It's what the enemy does. Because it wants to get our focus off of God onto ourselves. 
wants us to act outside of God, outside of his will, and wants us to miss God's will entirely. And so temptation is designed. It has a personal appeal. It has persistent attacks. And it has predictable attacks. We know to be on the watch. We know to be on the guard. So what is temptation's defense? How can we stand against temptation? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that uh, there is no temptation befallen you except that which is common unto man, that with every temptation that God will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able, but he will, with that temptation, bring a means of escape. We don't have to be a pawn in Satan's hand. We don't have to fall for the temptation over and over and over again, but I'm afraid oftentimes that's what ends up happening. We're not defending ourselves against temptation. We're not taking God's escape, but we just lay down and over and over again, we are run over by temptation. We give into it and give into it and give into it. But it doesn't have to be that way. God has given us a defense. Notice that Jesus didn't try to reason with Satan. He didn't try to argue with him. He didn't try to outsmart him whenever Satan was tempting him. Instead, he just flat out refused. You realize if you hold the door open for a little while, he's going to come in. You realize the longer that you consider temptation, the longer you toy with it in your mind, the more susceptible you are to it. And so he flat out refused. And so four ways here to defend ourselves from temptation. First of all, be led of the Spirit. You notice that Jesus was led into the wilderness of the Holy Spirit. He was where God would have him be. He was right in the middle of God's will. He was following after God. And the Bible tells us, be filled with the Spirit. It says, be not filled with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That idea of being Spirit-filled means that the Spirit is in control. The Spirit is calling the shots. The Spirit is guiding and directing you. And so if you are yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit and to His leading, you're going to better be able to stand against the temptations, the wiles of the devil. Second thing that we need to do whenever we're being defend, uh, defending ourselves against temptation, we need to be aware of the enemy. You can't ignore him. You can't pretend he doesn't exist. You can't be naive about it. This is one of the places where ignorance is not bliss. We know that the world, the flesh, and the devil all want to get us to sin against God. They all want us to do things that are harmful to us. Our flesh is like a little child that's bent on self-destruction. Have you ever noticed that kids, it seems like, uh, are trying to off themselves? Everything that they do, they're trying to do things to harm themselves. Melody's got this thing going now. She's trying to stand on top of things. And so she'll get like her toys and she'll try to stand on top of them. And then they fly out from underneath of her and she whacks her head. And so what you're constantly trying to do with a young, a young child is just keep it alive. Isn't that what parents do like the first three or four years of their child's life, or maybe the first ten? They're just trying to keep them alive because it seems like they're bent on destruction. Is that not what our flesh does as well? And so we need to be aware that there is an enemy. We also need to make sure that we're not confident in the flesh. You ever hear anyone say, I can handle it? Oh, that's foolish. If you think the Bible says, take heed whenever you think you stand, lest you fall. The Bible says that pride goes before uh, before a fall and heart, or pride goes before destruction and Holy Spirit before a fall. 
And so we see these things going on and we realize we are weak. Whenever we are trusting in ourselves, whenever we think that we have it under control, whenever we think we can handle it, we're going to find ourselves faulty. We're going to find ourselves destroyed. We need to put things in place that's going to protect ourselves from ourselves because honestly, we're one of our worst enemies. If you think you can handle it, you're wrong. For the alcoholic that thinks that he can get past the alcohol and that he can still be around those kind of things and not fall into it, he can't. Whenever you can constantly surround yourself with temptation and you think you can handle it, you can't. That's why whenever we look at Joseph, he was there constantly being pursued by Potiphar's wife. And every time that she came around, what did he do? He fled. He got himself out. He didn't trust his own flesh or hers. So don't be confident in the flesh. And the fourth thing, and I believe the most important one, and the one that's most displayed here in this passage, is if you are to defend yourself against temptation, you need to be in the Bible. You need to be in the Bible and have the Bible in you. Because every time that Jesus faced temptation here, how did he respond? It is written. He had a chapter and a verse to say why he could or couldn't do it. And so whenever we realize we're going to face temptation, we don't want to sin, we don't want to fall into all this mess and deal with the consequences of it and, and be out of God's will and be ran over of all these things and be destroyed by Satan. We don't want these things to happen. And God has given us tools to be able to escape them. And so if you know what the Bible says, if you know that it says that this is sin and this is wrong, then there's no question in our mind, do I do it or not? The question is, do I obey God or not? We're not sitting there trying to reason out, is it right, is it wrong? No, it's wrong. That makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? When there's no question about it, we already know, the Bible already tells us, the Bible tells us that the scripture, that this word is the sword of the spirit. It is our weapon that the Holy Spirit uses in our life to defend us from the tempter and from his snares and from his attacks. And so unless we are in this word and familiar with it, we are unequipped to deal with temptation. This should encourage us to be in the Bible. This should encourage us to be putting it in us, to be remembering it, for us to be concentrating, meditating on it, because it empowers us and enables us to face the temptations and walk away unscathed. So the fourth thing here, fifth thing with temptation. Temptation is danger. When you play with fire, you're always going to get burnt. That's the thing with temptation. What would have happened if Jesus would have given in to any of the devil's temptations? We don't know, right? Would be down a savior. But the thing is, Jesus couldn't give in to the temptations. The Bible tells us that he is God, and God doesn't tempt with evil, nor can he be tempted with evil. So it's very arrogant of Satan to think that he could tempt God with evil, but he did. He tried. But we've seen, we've talked about the fallout of people who have given into, into temptation. We know of lost ministries, failed marriages, uh, lost testimonies, broken homes, uh, all these different things, addictions, regrets that come about as a result of falling into temptation of courting it too long, of falling headlong into it, and allowing it to run its course. 
We know that with temptations, there are natural consequences when we give in. Sin has built-in consequences. We fall into sin, there will be consequences. Part of those are what we talked about with the, the lost relationships and testimonies and things. But it seems like with each sin, there is a consequence tied to it. I'm not going to go into all of those, but uh, we also have missed blessings. Whenever Satan can get us off course, whenever temptation draws us away from the things of God, we are going to miss the things that God would have us to do, that God has prepared for us. And so just in these two things, the natural consequences, the missed blessings, you're going to get things that you don't want, and you're going to miss things that you do want when you fall into temptation. Simple as that. There's going to be guilt, shame, and regrets. These fall under natural consequences. They're not things that God heaps upon us. They're things that God wants to cleanse us from, but it's the same things that the tempter is going to use to beat us down and to discourage us. Also, whenever we fall into temptation, we're going to have a decreased resistance. You ever notice that the first time you might fight it pretty well, the second time you don't fight it quite as hard, the third time it comes a little, and over time, as you give in to temptation, it becomes harder and harder to resist temptations. It overcomes us. It takes us over. It's like waves of the ocean and just keeps knocking us down, knocking us down. But the more times it knocks us down, the harder it is for us to stand against it. And so that's one of the risks that we face. One of the dangers where we give in to temptations, it becomes harder and harder to resist future temptations. But the last thing I want to look at is triumphs delight. All of this has been fairly heavy so far, thinking about just that we do have an enemy, that there's so many things working against us. There is destruction at hand if we give in to this temptation. If we sin, if we uh, go into all these things, it's going to draw us away from God. That's difficult for us. We don't like to think about that. We need to be aware of it. We don't want to be caught off guard. We don't want to be uh, pulled away from him. We don't want to uh, lose this effectiveness that he would have for us. We don't want to lose the blessings that he has for us. But whenever we stand against the temptation, whenever we walk with God, whenever we have his Holy Spirit with us, whenever we are in his word and we are aware of the things that he desires for us, and we come past the temptation and put Satan in his place and send him packing on his way, there is triumph. There is victory. Look with me, if you will, here in Matthew chapter number four, verse number 11. It says, then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. After the temptation was over, the devil went on his way, and God sent reinforcements. God sent a reward, and the angels came and ministered to him. Jesus could have prematurely made the bread and missed out on the provision that God had. We continue through Jesus' life and his ministry on the earth. He could have jumped off the pinnacle of the temple and had all men come and say, oh, surely he is of God. Look at this. The angels have bore him down into the middle of the temple square here. We're going to accept him. But they are not going to repent. They're not going to accept him in faith. They're going to accept him because the angels from heaven have delivered him down to the temple, right? But instead we find that since he was faithful to God, since he resisted the temptation, God drew men unto him. God brought about the plan of salvation. And for us, still even to this day, we are reaping the benefits of the fact that Jesus 
didn't do what Satan tried to get him to. God brought about things that Satan was offering in his time. And he did it in a much better way than what the cheap tricks and knockoffs that Satan was offering was. Jesus still had great benefits. He had a great delight, as I said here earlier, in what God brought that Satan tried to keep him from. We see ultimately that Jesus does have the entire world. He's going to rule and reign. He's going to be over all things. He is going to have the ultimate victory, and he didn't have to bow to Satan to get it. And so for us as Christians, whenever we resist the devil, he flees from us. We walk with God. God grows us. God guides us. God blesses us. God directs our steps, and he brings us to the place and to the purpose that he had planned for us. And we get to experience those things because we said no to temptation. So not only do we get to experience all of the blessings, we get to skip all of the mess that no doubt comes with temptation. And those are triumphs delights. We don't wallow in the hog pen. We can stay in the Father's house. We get to enjoy the benefits and blessings of being there with him without having to go through all those other things. Does God cast us aside whenever we sin and fall short? No, it says that he will forgive us and that he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't, uh, the Bible tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. If we belong to him, we are his. But I tell you, the journey is a lot better experience whenever we don't succumb to temptation. When we don't fall into sin and we stay right with God, the journey is going to be a lot better. So that's my encouragement today. Jesus has shown us all these things about temptation. And I hope that we will purpose in our hearts that we will determine to resist temptation, to be on the watch for temptation, to stand against it every time that it rears its head because it will destroy and it will divide, it will separate us from God. Don't fall into temptation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We do thank you for uh, this passage that we find today in your word. And Lord, I pray that it's been a help. Lord, I know uh, just talking about temptation, we all face it, we all struggle with it. We, we probably don't like to have it brought up, honestly. But Lord, help us, Lord, to see in your word that it doesn't have to defeat us, it doesn't have to destroy us, that you made a way for us to be victorious over it. And Lord, help us to do so. Help us, Lord, to see sin for what it is, as wicked and awful as it is, see it as destructive as it is, Lord, instead of desirable. And Lord, help us to flee from it and to hold fast to you. Lord, just be with each person in here, do exactly what's needed in their hearts and lives, drawn to you. Thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.